Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Fritz Coleman. I'm Louise Planker. MediaPath is your way to escape all that is dark and threatening in the world, from fake electors to the bad fried food at the Iowa State Fair. We like to divert your attention in a positive way with suggestions on interesting new media you should check out, amazing guests accomplished in their fields, and in the case of today's guest, accomplished in so many fields. Today, we're so happy we're welcoming Robbie Benson, an actor, a writer, a musician, a composer, an author, a playwright, a novelist, an activist, a college professor, and a friend. I hope you have enough time to sit with us because he has so many, we may have to go a couple of extra episodes here with him. But first, Weezy, what are you going to talk about today? Well, before we get into uh, my picks this week, I, I just want to mention, Fritz, that last week our guest, who is a lovely and gifted person, spoke out in defense of Michael Jackson as if his innocence is a given. And here at Media Path, we are not in the practice of challenging our guests. That's not our show's premise or its personality. But I do want to speak out now in defense of the young accuser in the Michael Jackson criminal case, Fritz. I, well, you, nobody has a better uh, platform to do that than you. Both Fritz and I were witnesses for the prosecution. Gavin is a friend, and I have known him since he was about nine years old. He is a decent, honorable, courageous, and accomplished person. Gavin was the first student from his community college to be accepted into Emory University. He's the first person in his family to go to college. He has never wavered from his account of what happened to him at Neverland Ranch, nor does he wish to be defined by it. Neither Gavin nor anyone in his family has ever sought to profit from the case. They seek only to live lives of purpose and fulfillment. I never knew Michael Jackson. I know Gavin, and I believe and support Gavin. Well said. I agree with you. We got to see his house and uh, be with his family for a while. We both taught him at comedy camp at the Laugh Factory in the summer. Mm -hmm. they, and I, you just knew from the first time you met this boy that in some fashion he would be an enormous success. Yeah, he's a special young man. Go ahead. All right, I'm going to talk about the Hollies. Look through any window, Fritz. I was scrolling around. I found this doc. It's from like maybe 2011. I found it on Amazon Freebie where you have to watch some ads, but it's worth it because as it turns out, like many of you, I had been taking the Hollies for granted. Mm -hmm. Within my naive bubble, the formation of Crosby, Stills, and Nash was destiny, the first supergroup with pedigrees from Buffalo, Springfield, the Birds, and the Hollies. Of course, Graham Nash was living in the canyon in the 70s, and his house was a very, very, very fine house. But Graham, <laughs> Graham Nash is, a, is British, and he was on top of the charts with the Hollies. What was he doing in Laurel Canyon, adding his voice to the chord that became CSN? The Hollies were a vocal harmony group with smash hits like Bus Stop, Carrie Ann, Stop, 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 and Look Through Any Window. What did CSN offer that the Hollies did not? Better weather, canyon views, it's not clear. In the doc, he's saying only that he was unhappy, and so he exited the Hollies at the Hollywood bus stop. CSN became the stuff of legend for sure, but post-Graham, the Hollies scored their biggest hits ever with He Ain't Heavy, Long Cool Woman, and The Air That I Breathe. A lot of range there. Original Hollies, Graham Nash, Alan Clark, Tony Hicks, and Bobby Elliott are all interviewed. The band members tend to preface explanations for musical choices with, well, we were bored, and so we tried this, or we just suddenly thought this or did that as if they feel an urgency to explain and qualify their actions because they were spotlit and carving their way through music history. And because they were so high profile at such a young age, they tend to forget that they were kids and they were learning and growing. And that can often mean growing apart, and that's okay. The doc features full performances of their hits, not just clips. It is entirely satisfying. You'll find the Hollies look through any window on Prime Freebie. I wanted to watch that last night, but the mockery 
democracy took a big Oh my God, forward. democracy was in effect. Yeah, last night. It was a big it, night. It was yeah. fantastic. So I, I will watch it tonight because I love music docs. Anyway, I, I want to suggest a series on Netflix. It's a six-parter called Painkiller. Uh, uh, other than COVID, the other most pressing epidemic in the 21st century is the opioid crisis. This series is about the Sackler family, the owners of the Purdue Pharma, marketers and peddlers of OxyContin, this series covers a lot of the same territory covered in Dope Sick, which was a wonderful series on Hulu starring Michael Keaton. Well, this one comes at the topic from a slightly different angle, but is equally as important in what it shows. It's done through the viewpoint of a government investigator. OxyContin started as a drug of last resort for severe pain sufferers like cancer patients and people with just insurmountable pain. But Purdue tweaked the drug a bit and invented a darkly brilliant way of marketing it as a drug that was safer and longer lasting than traditional painkillers. That myth was quickly shattered when abusers started crushing it and snorting it. The ingredients in OxyContin are almost identical to heroin. And when people began crushing and snorting, the incidence of addiction and death began to skyrocket. This series is done by Alex Gibney, who is one of the most a wonderful documentary filmmakers in the world. It stars Matthew Broderick. This is probably the darkest role he will ever play in his life, and he is amazing. He plays Richard Sackler, the twisted genius head of the Sackler family. It also stars Uzo Abuda, who is uh, Edie Flowers, the investigator for the DOJ we're talking about, and Taylor Kitsch as Glenn Kager, an auto repair shop owner. He's the key storyline. And I, I have a lot of uh, drug experience in my family, and I'm telling you, it's one of the most realistic portrayals of the struggles of an addict, heartbreaking and honest. And it's a really interesting discovery, too, because there's a young actress by the name of West Duchovny, who is the daughter of David Duchovny and Taya Leone. She plays a salesperson uh, for Purdue who has a crisis of conscience. The story of the Sacklers has been in the news as recently as last week. They've been trying to declare bankruptcy, which would limit their financial responsibility in a huge class action suit to $6 billion. The Supreme Court said, uh-uh, you ain't doing it. So they denied him the opportunity, but it's not over yet. It's a brilliant series. Have you had a chance to see it? It's, no, not, no. it's not for everybody. It's very depressing, but the acting is spectacular and the storyline is important. Yeah, no, I saw the one with Michael Keaton, so I, I will definitely yeah, check it out. But before we introduce Robbie, I just want to remind you that we, we don't have all these Barbies out for nothing, Fritz. We've got I, business to I, attend. I, We've I got thought, Barbie wow. business to attend to. So this is going to be really quick because there's a lot been written, oh, I forgot you got written Barbie. about Barbie and maybe Robbie and Carla have something to say about Barbie. But here we go. Uh, Barbie. This is not just a movie, Fritz. It's an event and a lifestyle that has mesmerized moviegoers, doll enthusiasts, and Google. The search results for the Barbie movie are in pink and accented with glitter fireworks. In the film, Barbie exists in a parallel land of dolls where the Barbies hold all the positions of influence and the Kens quietly adore them. But the critical membrane between play and reality is compromised Queuing Barbie to travel via Corvette, rollerblades, tandem bike, motorboat, snowmobile, camper van, and rocket ship into reality where men hold the power. An elaborately fun and ingenious poke at gender, class, capitalism, and similarly sensitive issues ensues. You've seen Barbie? I have seen it. And I, I, I the best thing about it was I went to see it with my daughter. Mm -hmm. And she has a whole different take on it, which she loved it. And, uh, uh, you know, as has been in the media with Bill Moore and these other people, some of the... 
the right wing is incensed that women, uh, that men have been uh, neutered in this movie. I think it was fantastic. And I think the speech about women's empowerment by America Ferreira should get an Oscar by itself. It's fantastic. It's not just about empowerment. It's about this tightrope that's almost non-existent that we're still expected yeah. to walk. And mm-hmm. so, that, you know, it was it was definitely worth it. I liked it. It was great. It was beautiful to look at, too. The set designer is on acid, but a wonderful talent. <laughs> now to the fun stuff. Our guest started as a teen idol and is still a teen idol in many people's hearts. He blew up in the 70s in one-on-one and ice castles. His voice got stuck in your head as the voice of Beast in the animated film Beauty and the Beast. And that was just the beginning of a highly colorful and varied career. I'm just going to cherry pick because we don't have enough time. He's written two best-selling books, Open Heart, about his experience with four open heart surgeries. Also a best-selling memoir. He's directed six episodes of Friends. He's directed 100 sitcom episodes. He wrote the libretto and composed the music for the show that was born out of his book, Open Heart. He composes film scores. He and his talented wife, Carly DeVito, got a gold record for the song Nobody Makes Me Crazy, which was recorded by Diana Ross. He co-wrote a hit song for The Breakfast Club. He's a writer of screenplays, composer of movies, movie soundtracks. He's been a film studies professor for 20 years at the Tisch School at NYU. He admits that show business has come to him since he was just exiting the womb. His mom, Anne, my friend and neighbor in her 90s, a singer, an actor, a business promotions manager, a gorgeous and lovely human being. His late father, Jerry Siegel, was a writer for 40 years. Robbie's been married to Carla DeVito, a singer and actress, just oozing with personality. She toured with Meatloaf for their Bat Out of Hell album, sang on Paradise by the Dashboard Light. She's done background vocals for many iconic rock bands. Carla and, and Robbie have two children with the most beautiful names, mm-hmm. Lyric and Zephyr. How are Lyric and Zephyr, my good friend? Oh, they're great. Thank you. Are they Thank living you. with you guys? Are they living close to you guys? Do you get to see them? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Zephyr and his fiance live with us at the moment, and um, our daughter Lyric lives with her husband and our grandchildren uh, in Maui. Oh and, no! Uh, oh no! Yeah. Is everybody okay? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So far. So far. I'm so yes. sorry. It's just hard yeah, to get your head right. wrapped around up that, and 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 you're having fires up very close to your home in the in, in Oregon, uh, which right. threatened you for a couple of days as well. I hope it doesn't get any closer than it is now. It's awful. Thank you, thank you, man. Thank so, uh, anyway, we have a lot to cover, Robbie. Thank you so much for being with us. You 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 weren't kidding when you said you started early. You hit Broadway. At a very early age, you worked for Joseph Papp and Pirates of Penzance, and you met Carla working on Broadway. Describe your early Broadway career. Well, um, I started in a when, when I was twelve. I uh, worked with uh, it, it, I worked with Ed Bagley and Lilia Scala in um, a straight play called Zelda, and um, so I was starring on Broadway. Uh, at 12 in a straight play, and that was fantastic. Um, and, and that led to uh, being one of the Rothschilds, Solomon Rothschilds, in uh, the Broadway musical The Rothschilds. Um, it was supposed to be in a show called Dude, uh, which 
actually, it was one of the biggest disasters ever on Broadway. Um, but but they were great people. I mean, it was the one of the guys who did Hair. Uh, it was his next venture, and I was supposed to do that show, but I got a movie called Jeremy, and I helped uh, write. It was my I was only, gosh, I was. You got a Golden Globe nomination for that one, right? For Jeremy, yeah. yeah. And you were what? What? Fourteen years and, old? Uh, no, I would. By then, I when it came out, I was sixteen. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, gee, I, I don't know. I, I I've been, you know, writing music all my life, and uh, just in every avenue that I go into that I'm fortunate enough to work in, uh, I try to bring music along. Was it so natural for was it natural for your folks to extend that to you since they were in these businesses? Were they concerned about you know your childhood and how that might affect your emotional development or you know friendships or socialization? You know, I probably had one of the greatest childhoods anyone could ever dream of. Wow! And I think that's because um, I was taught so beautifully in the theater. Because that's that's a different animal, you know. Than oh, I mean, if you're going to work in the arts, it's a it's a old school, you know, highly disciplined, highly skilled, and understanding. You know, as a as an actor, um, I grew up very very fast. As a human being, I, I, I'm. Barely in my twenties, <laughs> um, but that's because I've been so focused on on work. Um, so I, I so socially I'm, I'm backwards, but uh, but as far as a, a, my work is concerned, um, and like being able to talk to you guys, this yeah. is easy. So. Well, yeah. I I haven't known you for that long. But I've known your mother. Your mother is our upstairs neighbor and is the uh, pilot light of the entire apartment complex. <laughs> she she is so she she takes no crap from anybody uh, like the That's HOA. Right. And man, I love having her on my team. She is so lovely and warm. And I had the yeah. honor of uh, about a month ago attending your father's funeral jerry siegel who was a wonderful writer and i love the testimony from friends and family there so it's not surprising to me that you've grown up to be really one of the most engaging and warmest people that you could possibly know just knowing your parents for a brief period of time thank you that's so kind of you yeah. and and you know i i'd like to tell you since unfortunately this is how we're seeing each other again um <laughs> how much it means to me that you're in my mom's life uh, as her friend. I, I can't tell you what that means to us, to my wife and I. Your, your mom so, is in her 90s amazing. and is, honestly, yeah. she is gorgeous and and is sharp and her the sparkle in her yeah. eye and her smile. Uh, she's, a, she's an inspiration to all of us. You know, um, we are, when I was just a little boy, like 11 years old, I was in a production of Oliver that went to Japan, and my mom, uh, who played uh, Nancy, oh, wow. uh, was asked was asked to go with the original cast from London 
and understudy Nancy in Japan. And uh, so we went to Japan together and um, one song meant so much to us. This was back in uh, the early 70s. We, over there, we heard Moon River. Uh, actually, it was in 68. That's when it was, 67, 68. Um, and my mom and I have always thought, you know, that's a beautiful song. And we think about each other and, and what we've been through. So in, I make music here in my little studio. And I don't, I don't know if you can see. Oh, yeah. Wow. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, we're working on Moon River. Oh. And she's, I'm going to uh, make sure that that she sits beautifully in the mix. Aww. So it'll be a lovely, lovely, um, lovely little thing. We'll, we'll, we'll be working on that this week. So by the yeah. time we get back, or she gets back, we'll, we'll bring her home. That'll be a nice well, legacy I, for your family. I can't wait to hear that. That sounds wonderful. And um, if you don't mind me saying this, because since you brought it up, Fritz, um, my dad and I used to write songs together. Mm -hmm. And um, I used to sing them, <laughs> sing them on Mark Griffin, uh, Mike Douglas, sang two different times or three different times on Johnny Carson. Um, so uh, I started going my own way musically, but we wrote some really lovely little tunes together. And so I'm, I had this project where I'm remastering these little songs and, and it's called uh, songs I wrote with my father oh lord and uh, and I'm writing it uh, so there'll be a little album a little EP or album however we'll in today's world we'll get it out there um, but I'm actually writing it as a play uh, and it's, it's a play with music it's not a musical it's a play with music so that's a big deal to me and I, I just that's what I'm working on now. So I. Uh, wow, what a great way to honor your father, who was very talented as well. That sounds thanks. amazing. Well, you know, some of the most profound work you've done in your life has been about your struggles, your, your heart surgeries. You had four. You wrote the book about yes. it, Open Heart. We turned it into a successful musical. Talk about uh, the bravery, but also the cathartic effect of sharing your very personal story with an audience. I think when I went through this, I was, you know, I was doing extremely well in the business at that time. And um, I, um, <laughs> my mom, my, my mom got in touch with us and uh, she said, you know, you you, you got to look at lowering your, your life insurance. You should go get, you know, a checkup. And so my, my mom said, go to the doctors. And I went, I would. okay, I will. And I did. And uh, they called the next morning at like five in the morning from UCLA. And they said, you need open heart surgery. You need to get here now. Oh, Lord. And we said, well, well, you know, by now, you mean like sometime this week, we'll they went, you get <laughs> in the car, you come here. So um, my first open heart surgery, um, <laughs> I I found it um, just I, I, again I don't know this is a very bizarre thing I found it hysterically funny um, 
that at this point in my life, this is the hurdle. And it was like, yeah, okay. How old were you? Um, How old were you then? Uh, gosh, I had been married. Uh, we had a one-year-old baby. I was 28. Wow. I was 28. And, uh, you know, vital in, in, in show business as far as, you know, I mean, the boy next door, however you want to think of it, most of my stuff had some kind of sports in it. And, you know, and suddenly I needed open-heart surgery. And this was back in the early 80s. And um, even... The surgery itself, open heart surgery in the early 80s, <laughs> was just a phenomenon. I mean, it, you know, of course, many people survived it, but it was still a huge life changing operation when they saw it. You know, absolutely. Um, but I, I don't know, my job in life is to make sure everybody else is okay. <laughs> and usually laughing. Um, and so it happened to be uh, Halloween. And as they were rolling me back out of the, uh, from surgery, I, I managed, I heard my, my wife's voice and I heard my mom's voice and I heard my sister's voice. And I went, trick or treat. <laughs> and uh, I heard my sister laugh, which is the only reason I think I was ever born. <laughs> that was my that was my job in life was to make my sister laugh. Um, wow. Anyway, uh, so you, you know, I think going through something like open heart surgery and being young and strong, you know, I ran a a ten k four weeks to the day after they cut me open. So, holy cow, you know, I didn't run it well. I mean, I ran it in like 42 minutes, so I, I wasn't in my, I wasn't doing what I normally used to do, but you know, but it's like for me, it was really important that everyone knew I was going to be okay in my family, mm -hmm. and and the way that they know that is for me to continue, and so that became my MO, and uh. I think that's actually the biggest battle of anyone's life is... is uh, Press forward. Yeah, always. Never look mm -hmm. back. Just keep moving. So keep moving the, the book was a best-selling book, and then you turned it into a musical, and you wrote the libretto and the music track. What is a libretto, technically? Uh, um, the book. Oh, okay. Uh, the lyrics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the music. So it, it, it was. I learned a lot from that. Let's just. It's a good. It's a good show. I mean, it should live. It's a good little show. So I, 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 I bet lot. you. <laughs> I bet you got some interesting and touching feedback from audience members who may have had your story resonate with them with the family situation of their own. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, that's that's really the whole point of. I mean, for me. I had a public forum because I did made movies and they cut me open and they changed my life. And I thought, Whoa, I could, there's so many people I could tell about how this works. What are the warning signs? What did should they look for? Where did I make mistakes? Oh, and I made a lot of mistakes. I can't tell you. I mean, I even did the most pompous and arrogant things 
putting off surgery, like my second surgery, I needed it so badly. And, and I kept putting it off because <laughs> I was directing pilots at the time. And I was, it was like, I got to direct this pilot. You know, this, if they, if I die on the table, this pilot could mean that my family's okay. You know, it's like that kind of mentality where you think as a human, you're in control of life and death. Mm -hmm. but Let's just say naturally. Um, so anyway, so, uh, so, so my whole, it, my whole job really will always be until the day I die is to help people. I just, my, my buddy, who's a DP just went through this and we, uh, this sounds awful to say this, but we begged him to go to the Cleveland clinic because that is the most remarkable, holistic, kind, scientific, methodical, compassionate place I have ever been. And I've been in too many hospitals. And if you need anything done with your heart, I would please listen to me. Go to the Cleveland Clinic. Mm. Yeah. yeah, see Brian Griffin, the cardiologist. I mean, these people that are, they're just Mike Royzen. Do you know Mike Royzen? I do not. Fritz? No. He writes a lot of books. Um, he's, he's, in charge of like overall health, executive health at uh, Cleveland Clinic, I think. He's brilliant. These people are brilliant and they care. And, and it's not because like, I mean, I went in as Robin Siegel. They, you know, I, I'm a, they, no one knows. I'm just this guy. And, and they took such good care of me. And they took such good care of my friends and the people that I talked to it's it's just a remarkable place. Um, yeah, don't take a chance with your heart. You only got one. Yeah. <laughs> I unfortunately have a kidney problem, so we got two of those. I have one and a half. But uh, I think that's anyway. what, what what really. Um, I don't want to go too far into this because it's none of my business, but. You know, Carla's had some struggles, but but your medical stuff and her medical stuff and the passing of your dad. But what I was stricken with is just your beautiful and warm and positive attitude when I when I saw you and uh, you uh, sort of float above it, and which is uh, amazing to watch. You're very kind. Thank you. I, I you know I'm lucky. I was raised well. I also had other families in film and, and theater and, and only went to the people who were giving. You know, you talk about Carla. So Carla took over for Linda Ronstadt. Uh, they threw her out on second reviewers night because uh, Linda got sick and she couldn't go on. So Carla went on and got rave reviews. This is for Pirates of Penzance, right? This is in the Pirates of Penzance on Broadway. Um, in 1981, and uh, I did the movie The Chosen, and I couldn't be, I was asked to do Frederick in the Park, and I ended up doing the movie The Chosen. But I came back to New York uh, for a premiere of The Chosen at Radio City Music Hall, and I got a call from Mr. Pat, and he says, 
he said, come, you know, check this out. And it was remarkable. And Kevin Klein was ridiculous. And, <laughs> and so I went, I, I went in and uh, wanted to work with Kevin and uh, did not know Carla. Carla did not know my work. And from the moment I walked in the rehearsal room with Carla, I realized I was with one of the most gifted and talented people I had ever even been close to. Her voice is absurd. I mean, she's rock and roll. She's the girl in me love, man. Mm -hmm. But she sings coloratura. I mean, she sings better than any, I, I, I've never heard. She, mm -hmm. she, she'll, she'll, you talk about float, she floats and, and, you hear her voice just just lilting and then bam she belts out a note you don't think she has could no one has this in there and then suddenly she's jumping and up to i mean it's just remarkable so um I've never seen that kind of talent, never been close to that kind of talent. And this is like true talent. This this isn't like me as a ball player, you know, like working on my sway. I mean, this is like Barry Bonds. This is Mickey <laughs> Mann. This is Willie Mays. This is the greatest. This is Secretariat. Forgive me. That's the that's my new <laughs> Carla's Secretariat. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm on stage with her and I didn't know my blocking because I wasn't put in well. And she just is guiding me through and there's not an, an ounce of ego. And then she opens her mouth and starts singing. And I have to tell you, those people in the audience, they paid to see that. I got paid <laughs> to listen to this live night, eight shows a week. Wow. And now, in my life, I get to share my life with this woman. I'm telling you, I wish there were eight days a week, man. I got to tell you, that may be the single greatest husband's testimony of her wife anybody's ever said. That, was, uh, that, that night was, was, a, was a metaphor, and it was also like a preview. And you have to recognize oh. in your life when you see a preview of what your life can be, and you saw it and you grabbed oh, for man, it. Oh, man, that's really you reached, touching. You both oh. reached out for that it. That was so touching. Yes, but let me explain also something else. There is something missing in me, and... There's like nothing missing in her. Oh. But she also compliments me. She fills in the part that's missing. Mm -hmm. And it's it's remarkable. And I know how lucky I am. Um, I just, I write songs about it because I hope people, I hope they can get this too. It's, it's remarkable. That's, just, well, Robbie, yeah. I spent the weekend reading this book I started out thinking I was going to peruse it because I, I only had two I'm days. I'm sorry, which one is that? Oh, is that, I that's Who Stole it. the Funny and... Ah, yeah. Who Stole the Funny. Yeah. Good. And <laughs> I started reading it and I was like, okay, this is more than based on real life. This, is, <laughs> this guy's writing some really super duper 
intense inside crap about something extremely popular. And so I, I just kind of devoured the book over the weekend. And so I, I'm just going to I'm just going to ask you, you know, a couple of questions about it because, you know, in both yeah. in both your film One on One and this book, Who Stole the Funny, you take bold, healthy shots at the cruel, bloated, self-important worlds of college sports and entertainment. So, how cathartic was that for you? Oh, it cost me my career, and it was worth it. <laughs> uh, because I, I what happened is I ended up working on a lot of different shows and I ended up doing extremely well and was extremely fortunate and only believed I I never believed we did the best show we could do but I love that attitude of just you it's 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 basically it's summer stock in four and a half days you know it's yeah. the read on monday and then you shoot on friday and there's a real beauty in that and and to understand that and i i i just adore it but unfortunately i ended up with one showrunner uh who said that i was i was uh trying to enhance the quality of his show Oh, and he God. wanted to fire me. Shame. Yeah, and it was Shame. Like, Damn you. And that was that was the beginning of, of something with a very famous movie star who was caught in Malibu cursing at the cops and running and being anti-Semitic. Um, I had to work with him on this show. And, you know, I'll say that... Everything I say forward from now is in my opinion, so I don't get sued. <laughs> gotcha. Um, oh my goodness, the dishonesty, the bad behavior. I mean, well, it was funny. It was sad. It was scary. It was overwhelming, and it's hysterical. I mean, man, this stuff's funny. <laughs> um, you know, as long you know, it came back and bit me. Um, you know, that's not the person people want. You know, to I guess. You know, I I I had a um, a very sweet man who kind of turned on me. I thought he was my brother, not just my friend, and he he kind of turned on me because he also represented all the writers and the showrunners. And that's how, of course, he makes an amazing living. Um, and he's a really good guy. It's just that the rules they play by got to a place where I felt um, good guys don't do that. <laughs> right. and, uh, and, and so I eventually had to say goodbye to directing sitcoms uh did you find that that I attitude because i i wanted them to be funnier right just to clarify for a sec fritz before we move on the book is a fictionalized account of a week you spent directing a certain very popular sitcom about new york city pals and roomies that you call i love my urban well, bodies and, and that's yeah. because okay so that what, what's interesting is that you know some people think that's friends it's not, you know, what this was, was after you 
after the Friends phenomenon, like everything else, Hollywood, everyone wanted to make friends. Mm. Everyone wanted to make the next friends. You know, mm. let's make the, the two buddies or the three of the guys, the four that will wait, seven, we'll do this, we'll do that. <laughs> you know, and um, so that was the show. The show is like by people who are assigned these jobs because they were baby writers, baby writers on hit shows. And then all of a sudden another show became popular. And so to get them to run the show, they took baby writers and they put them in position of showrunners back in the day. And there would be a learning curve. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that they weren't talented or they didn't they didn't deserve it. They did, but there was always a learning curve. And w when you put those young, younger writers as showrunners, but then all of a sudden there were these cynical old showrunners and, uh, Oh my goodness. It, it, it look, I mean, why I, I I'm foolish. No, I'm an idealist. I mean, it's all, it, it really, come on. It all comes down to money. I mean, we're sitting here and we know, you know, my mom and and my wife are glued to, you know, Deadline White House or something because it's got to be all about the money. I mean, mm -hmm. how can these things keep, terrible things keep happening? And, and, and I don't mean this in a simplistic way. I mean, this is, uh, this is pretty wild. It's very complex. You've, per you've perfectly come? described Wheezy in my life. That's all we do is watch MSNBC all day yeah, long. Yeah, Wait for democracy to either survive or implode. But I would, I would hazard to say it's about more than money. It's also about power and influence and wanting to feel important. Because that has to be all Rudy Giuliani is trying to do is to be valid <laughs> or something, right? Because he's just lost There's... his compass if he ever yes. had one. But I don't know if he ever did. Boy, I talk about something missing. Yeah. Holy yeah, moly. Right. I mean, this whole group, I, I just it's I so don't bad. understand. It's so bad. You know, it, it really is. And we and I you know, since you guys talked about shows that you watch, we've been watching this lovely thing from PBS called Endeavor. And it goes for like eight or nine seasons. Oh, yeah. And to watch these young actor and and this older man grow like eight nine seasons in front of you and and it's beautifully done it gets better and better i mean like around five or six year five or six it it, it becomes um a little soap opera -ish. and then all of a sudden right around season six it's it's really fascinating and interesting oh, god bless pbs pick. yeah that's a good i pick. mean all the brits that yeah. whole brit box block of shows you can't do better you can't do better with the acting or the writing and, and, acorn yeah. and pbs has the best documentaries frontline is still the best documentary yeah. on television as far as i'm concerned. oh yeah so we love pbs yeah. so it isn't it great when you find a show that you love and you realize you're in season one and there's like nine seasons. Like, this is awesome. Yes. I just hit the lottery. Yeah. So you, um, man, you, you, you blossomed early. You wrote your first screenplay at Warner Brothers when you were 18 years old, one-on-one. -on -one. How did that happen? Yeah. I was living in uh, a little apartment in Midvale, Midvale Apartments in uh, Culver City. And my aunt Sandy, 
who adores you and who wants me to say, I love you to you. She loves you. Is she up there with you guys? She's not up there with you guys. She's been here, but she's not on this trip. Oh, nice. Well, thank you. Um, you um, Anyway, uh, I was, I had just come from New York where I was always busy and working. And I had come to LA and one day I see an agent who's supposed to be working for me walking down the street and he goes, Hey, Robbie, how you doing? And I went, well, you tell me, <laughs> uh, you know, this, this isn't good. Yeah. Uh, and he went, man, things are really slow. It's that time of year. You know, that sentence, it's that time of year and things are really slower. It's like, mm. wow, you don't want to hear that <laughs> if, if you love to do things. Mm. And so what that meant was I would run more, I'd play more basketball, and I would write more. And I wrote on longhand. I didn't know how to type. So I wrote longhand on uh, yellow pads. And I and there's a certain kind of legal pad that uh, really works well as far as pacing is concerned when it comes to what a script reads like. And, um, and I felt that as I would write, and I wrote a, two or three uh, screenplays and then wrote one-on-one and was lucky enough to get a meeting with a man named Alan Shane, Alan Shane, I think. And he was in production and he probably could say yes to small movies. And back then, like I did, um, Ode to Billy Joe for Warner Brothers, and it cost a million bucks. Mm. Um, like, I think it cost one six. And so I went in and I showed them one on one, and they went, Wow, this is kind of cool. And your last movie for us is doing really well. And so they said, we like it. And I said, I want to do a rewrite. I want to include my father. And um, they went, that's great. And so my dad and I uh, spiffed it up. And and it ended up, we ended up getting a go. I mean, it was just pretty phenomenal as a a young man. Do it with your dad. I, I learned a lot about the world from work. Mm. It was, it, it's an incredible way to grow up. And you wrote Ice Castles too, talk about that one. <laughs> I hit, I was in, I wanted to go back to New York and, and there was a show that wanted me, um, they were do, doing a musical called King of Hearts based on that great um, movie that came out of, uh, out of, uh, the UK. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, but a- anyway, so I went and I was working on uh, King of Hearts out of town um, with a man named AJ Antoon directing. Uh, he did, and he won a Tony for that championship season. Mm. Um, and he was pretty brilliant. And I felt the show was going to be great. 
and uh, the producer ended up firing my friends. Uh, and so uh, I left the show and I got a phone call from a man named Donald Rye. And I had made a movie with Donald called Death Be Not Proud. Um, and he fought for me to get that part. And he called me and he said, you owe me now. I, I want you to do this movie for me called Ice Castles. And I said, what, what do I have to do? And he said, you have to skate. And I, I've never been on a pair of skates before. Wow. Um, and he said, uh, well, we're going to get you together with this skating, speed skating coach for the New York Islanders. Um, her name was Barbara. Uh, and she taught me in a matter of about five weeks, she taught me how to at least look like a hockey player. <laughs> and I loved it. And I wanted to be a hockey player. <laughs> and uh, I cracked my hip. Ooh. Um, but I, I, I said, what's the story? And he said, uh, it's about a young lady who hits her head and goes blind. And then you help her win the Olympics or something. And I went, really? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I went, okay. I owe you. <laughs> and, um, and we ended up having a wonderful time. Yeah. Well, are you ready to play a little game I call IMDb Roulette? This is how it, <laughs> this is oh. how our game is played. Uh, this is I mention a show and that you were on, and you tell us or a movie, and you tell us who you played and what you remember about the experience. All right, we're going to start with Wait Until Dark. Oh no! Okay. Um. So. Uh, I actually got a featured moment because I think I'm coming off of an airplane and I'm just this one of the kids getting off the airplane and I saw a ball. And it, when I was young, if there was a ball, I needed to play with it. And <laughs> I started throwing the ball up and the director went, that's great. We want the boy who throws the ball up. And... That's the way I'm, they put my name in the credits, yeah. I think. So this, according to IMDb, the slug line is a recently blinded woman is terrorized by a trio of thugs while they search for a heroin-stuffed doll they believe is in her apartment. You're in the film with Audrey Hepburn, Richard Crenna, and Alan Arkin, and you are uncredited, but IMDb lists you as boy bouncing ball. Boy bouncing And that is your ball. first, that's your first IMDb credit. So congratulations. You knew how to make it a standout performance <laughs> for yourself and for that lucky ball. Okay. Uh, the next next we have is Lucky Lady. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Lucky Lady. So I went in to audition for Lucky Lady right after Death. Uh, yeah, Death Be Not Proud because I was bald. Okay. And Stanley Donan... Uh, who directed Lucky Lady. You have to remember, this is Stanley Donan. Yeah. Stanley Donan co-directed Singing in the Rain. Wow. Um, yeah. So I walk in and he says to me, um, how tall are you? And I said, 5'11". He said, you'd be six feet if you stood up straight. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I thought, oh, my God. And then he like, kept walking through the room and just kind of left. 
And I thought, oh my God, this is like the worst meeting I've ever had. <laughs> I, I've not, I didn't stand up straight and I've somehow offended this man. <laughs> Next thing I knew, um, I, I, there was, let's see, Liza Minnelli, Gene Hackman, Burt Reynolds, and then me. Yeah. Holy cow. On this boat. Wow. Yeah, on this boat in the middle for six months of shooting and in Mexico. And uh, it was, that was a wild experience. I was not treated like those guys. Um, they would get to ride home in a speedboat when we were out to sea. <laughs> so after a full day of work, but I had to take the sailboat back okay. with the rest of the crew. Yeah. And um, so I, I wasn't in their little circle, but I was the crew and I, I we had a blast. Uh, you know, I mean, we ate everything that they could feed us, which means we got sick. <laughs> I mean, sick oh, no. and hallucinating oh, no. <laughs> and then going out to sea. You know, it's like, whoa. So that was a very wild experience. And, and I became actually a really good friend to Burt Reynolds. Um, most people don't have nice things to say about him. I, I have to tell you, that's not the case I, with me. I, he was a really good guy. He's, and a very uh, funny man. I did a special uh, on, on Channel 4 called The Perils of Parenthood, which was based on my stand-up about being a parent. But uh, I, what I did was I went around and interviewed famous parents. So he, this was when he had a show over on the Radford lot called Evening Shade. Mm -hmm. He said, well, bring your camera over here and I'll give you an interview. Yeah, Robbie worked on that too. Did you work on Evening Shade? Yeah. Holy I cow. I did it. No! <laughs> Maybe you were right yeah. there. I thought I felt your presence. I was in his office. But anyway, uh, I go in there and I got, you know, it's Burt Reynolds. So I spent four days making up 10 pages of questions so I didn't sound stupid. And I, I'm... We're setting the camera up, and, I, and I'm, I'm going through my you know, clipboard of all this stuff. He said, what are you going to do with that? I said, well, I've got some questions I want to ask. He said, listen to me. Turn the camera on and shut up. <laughs> and so for a half hour, this man riffs on being a father. He was like a stand-up comedian. He was so funny. And, you know, he had yeah. just, he had, his son was called Quentin or something. And he told yeah. this whole, it was brilliant. And I, and I always knew he was funny. He was always one of the best guests on the Johnny Carson show because he was so amusing. So that was my brush with Burt Reynolds. And I, I, he was a very, very funny man. Yeah, he's a great guy. I, I, so I directed him in Evening Shade. I also directed him in a movie that I would beg you both to see, especially it, what you just said about parenthood. There's a movie called Modern Love. It's only available on Fubo right now. F-U-B-O, is that right? Fubo or something? Um, it was made <laughs> with only my students and a small crew wow. uh, from... Uh, from Hollywood, and I was teaching film, so all of my students were involved in one way or another. And but this movie, this tiny little movie, is really—I'm very, very proud of it. I, wow. I really wish that, yeah, that it would have more of a life. Um, it right. deserves it. And we, Bert did us a favor by being in the movie. We well, um, I'm sure he loves you like a son, and we will put this in our show notes. So that folks can cool. find it. I have two more entries Thanks. in IMDb Roulette. One day at a time. 
Yes. Um, one day at a time. Well, that's Bonnie Franklin, who was just such a wonderful human being. Um, and uh, I played, I, I guess, um, I, I, I don't really remember. I, I know that I asked her out. Um, <laughs> that's the whole point of the show, was that I thought I could ask her out on a date. I think that's what it was. It's called The College Man. You play Ken. Uh, and I'm not sure if you ask out Mackenzie or Val. I was a page. Oh. So maybe I met you there. I don't I don't know. It's possible. Oh. Cool. I was a studio page. All right, one more. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Um that I I'll I'll say the the pilot that I shot um was really fun for me because I I really loved the writer and the creator uh, who was the showrunner of this particular show and they asked for my advice and at that point that was a really nice feeling because technically I was very good at at the choreography of people and cameras and this was really a combination of being a single camera show, a multi-camera show, and a special effects show. And um, I was allowed to build kind of like a little, um, a little cast for it. And so that it would continuously work by doing uh, a Wednesday of pre-shoot multi-camera, a Thursday of uh, single camera, and a Friday of special effects, and get the week done with making sure that Monday and Tuesday addressed all the problems that we needed, you know, in in order to make the week. And so that was a wonderful experience, and I I loved working with the people I worked with there. It seems like in reading your book that you, you... You may be someone who enjoys puzzles because you really love the choreography of figuring out <clears throat> the movement of the cameras, the movement of the actors, and you just maybe you, I, I get the I, I pictured that girl in that chess series where you look at the ceiling mm-hmm. and you just see them you see the moves. Um, is that how your mind works? Oh my goodness, I. I... I think one of the reasons that I am so lucky that I'm with Carla and I'm out in the middle of nowhere is my mind won't stop. Mm. It never stops. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yes, I see things and they must come together. And if they don't, I I try to ask myself why and see if I can finesse and make things okay. Mm -hmm. You could have played Oppenheimer. Anyway, uh, <laughs> hey, uh, I want to talk about, before we run out of time about your uh, appearance on a really interesting show on Apple TV called Severance. Now, I have it. You're in season two, right? Yes. And I've I've watched the first season, but it is a spectacular. I hate corporate bureaucracy. I'm so glad I retired to be out of that. But it's a spectacular look at the corporate world where you feel lonely and underappreciated, stuck in your solo cubicle. And I thought, I'm going to watch the whole thing because if that's the sort of the conceit for the rest of the series, I'm in. It's so interesting. Talk about your character in season two. Well, um, 
the awful thing that I have to say is that I can't. <laughs> um, oh. We're not allowed to talk about anything. It's, what I can tell you, which I think is a little more interesting, because I, I probably don't even know enough right now, because of it's not only were they working with a new uh, time frame, uh, but they had to deal with the strikes. And um, so they're, oh, you know, man. they're going nuts, I guess, and trying to put things together. Um, but they're a remarkable group of people. I mean, remarkable. Really creative. It, it's so funny because I, I really wasn't that interested in going back to work as an actor. And, and I thought, you know, Maybe I'll get to meet and talk to Ben Stiller because Aww. we have a lot in common. Yeah. His mm -hmm. parents, the way he grew up, the things he does now as an actor, as a, as a director, the way he thinks, he's so, he's, he's funny. I mean, you don't laugh. It's just, it's just true funny. It's like this, this works. And um, so the idea that I got to actually meet him and, and I just started work. Believe it or not, I started work in October. Well, I guess that's when I got the job in November and then December I was there and I did some, they're very particular. It's not, it's not the TV that I grew up. Doing. No, no, it takes a minute to get used to it, but it's really interesting. No, but he's saying the way, oh, they, the way they shoot it is. Yeah, yeah, there are no, oh, there are no more than two actors on the screen. As, as if it is the biggest film I've ever worked. Wow. And I mean that. I, you know, and I've worked on some big movies, but i just give you a, one thing. I said, they said, be in front of the hotel and then we'll pick you up at 645. And it's like, that's perfect for me because I'll be there at 6. Because <laughs> that's just how I think. And that's my job. I'm there. No one has to worry. I don't care how late. I don't care how long I have to wait. So I'm there at really early. And... I'm waiting for, they said, the van will pick you up at 6.45. And now it's almost 6.30, then it's 6.40, then it's 6.50, and now it's 7. And there is no van, and there are almost no traffic. And I'm thinking, I must be at the wrong hotel. They, somehow everything gets mixed up, and, and I, don't use my, I don't use a cell phone. Mm -hmm. I hate cell phones. Yeah. Um, I hate that whole, anyway. But... but um, I had a number and I called them and they said, well, he's been out there. And I went, no, I've been out there. He hasn't been out there. And they said, there's a van waiting for you. And I just looked and I said, there's a, like a Mercedes Benz bus. You know, it looks like it holds 16 people. That's our van. Wow. You know, when I directed even movies, the biggest van was a caravan. It was more people. It was just bigger. And, and you know, we're driving to locations. But this thing, you're suddenly, I'm all alone in this, in this thing. And we're doing, so that's, that's a new thing for me. And then, and then I, I will say this, and then I get to the set, and I'm with, like, the greatest group of people, and... Then I felt like Ben Stiller. I felt like there's this brotherhood. It's just the weirdest thing. He's oh. just a great guy. So yeah, I, I, there's more to come. It's an interesting show. Whenever I'll tell you. they, yeah, whenever they get back to work and mm. all is right.
you know, in the unions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and yeah, and yeah. one, I want to get to one other thing. I hope you'll permit me to do this before we run out of time, Robbie. You and Carla sure. wrote and performed a beautiful piece called Broken. It's very profound, but very necessary right now. And, and because the lyrics are, I'll just call them thoughtful, some people would say controversial, you've been rejected from various platforms. But I'm going to recommend that you go listen to it because in the, in the era that we're in right now, this is such an important piece of work. Thank you. Okay, Thank it's, you. A, it's a beautiful really piece of, of let, let me ask you do, you, do you think we're in too politically correct an era now or the, the chasm between sides in politics and society is just too much to expect people to you know, to listen to other viewpoints? You know, I think that our country is in shock. Mm -hmm. And I have great faith in our country, like I have faith in my own heart, that it'll return to a stronger and better country. That's what I'm hoping, that we're more dignified, more decent, more thoughtful, more more um, You speak for all of us, my friend. I think we could be less afraid of each other, mm-hmm. and it seems like that's what we're being taught. We're being taught to fear the other, or I mean, my. Well, my yeah, I think I, I I agree with you. I think fear has been weaponized. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, and it's a political and, platform. And, Well, I I think, yeah, I I don't know how to return the volley except except to just try. Just with with more love. And, you know, I switched to Fox for a moment just to see how they were covering the indictment. And I, I just heard the words Democrat hellscape. And I switched back. I, I, I don't understand how we, we in big cities love small towns. Every Hallmark movie is about somebody escaping the big city. And we love small towns. Why do they hate us? This is not a hellscape. This is Los Angeles. Okay. It's a beautiful place. Okay. okay. Well, so here's what I have always had a problem with. Mm-hmm. Fritz said, you have a problem with dealing with corporate America, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, or the corporate mentality. Mm-hmm. Is that is Absolutely that correct, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's what ended up getting me, is that, that that exact, you know, why is this so tangled and complicated and ugly? This doesn't need to be, and now it's, it's not just ugly, it's restrictive. And you can't, it's, there's no winning here. You must go around here mm-hmm. and, let's say, write a play with music mm-hmm. instead of going back there and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I just, I have always had a problem living in Hollywood, living in L.A. Mm-hmm. I just have a problem living there. Mm-hmm. 
I'm probably the most liberal person you'd ever want to meet. As a Jew, I thought it was good that the Nazis marched in Skokie because as an American, they had that right. Mm -hmm. And everyone has the right to turn around and walk away and not listen to them. And that don't be there when they do it. Mm -hmm. um, I have lived in little America all over America. I have taught at the University of Utah, the University of South Carolina, at a, for a moment at App State, Appalachian State. Mm. I love these places yeah. that we've gone. Yeah. Um, even Bloomington, Indiana. Mm. <laughs> mm. But um, but what we what I get a sense of is that city people think country people are all crazy and red and Republican. And I'm on this block. We all vote the same and it's democratic. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's all democratic. I mean, and we're the small, we're, we're not the big guys. We're not the tree owners here. Mm -hmm. we're, we're in timber country. This is owned by people who are rich. Okay. We're not rich. Right. A ladies, a nurse, uh, a retired guy from uh, the canyon here uh, who was a, 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 a football coach, high school football coach, and, and his wife who taught at the same school, high school. They live there. And no, we there's none of that mm -hmm. here. Right. There isn't right here. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden there's a pocket of it. Sure. And it is frightening mm -hmm. but then it's not and, and i'm talking like it so it's not what what you might think no. you might think that you know the country bumpkins i'm kind of a country bumpkin but then you point out a good thing though and and that's something that people are beginning to recognize that these small loud groups are just small loud groups it just seems like it, it just seems like there are more people involved in that movement when they really aren't i mean all this trouble yes. with trump and all our fear about trump the truth is only about 25 people of his base still support him so all this anxiety probably is for nothing i hope so uh, but uh, yeah. but uh, i just think whoever is the noisiest gets the most heat Right. And uh, that, yeah. that's that's the problem. Yeah, and they can have like a hundred online profiles, so it seems like there's yeah. more people. <laughs> you know, I just I don't want you know, people to be so afraid of uh, knowledge, <laughs> and it just seems like they're, they're so insecure about maybe not having gone to college that you know it's like no, you want your doctor to have gone to college. Like that's not a threat. That's someone who knows something mm -hmm. who can share it with you. Why? It's mm -hmm. not an either or. It's we. It's a collaboration. This is a dance where we're 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 in this thing called life together. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Play to your um, strength. Love everybody. It's weird. You know, it's like, I, you know, we were at Albertsons and I went to have someone drop something and I went to help them and it was like, they were shocked. Oh. You know, it was I thought like, you were going to steal their arugula. It was just so sad. And, yeah. and there was another lady who was having trouble getting their groceries in the thing. I went, oh, here, I'll help you. And, oh. and and she was worried. Oh. And that that was bothered. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't blame her. I mean, mm -hmm. I guess it's. If, but uh, that's sad. No, re really sad. Yeah. 
I think we could all, you know, we can all learn, as you did from every time you faced adversity, you learned. And I think as a nation and as a world, we can all learn from this adversity. What do we, why are we going through this? What are we meant to learn? Like, how do I come out the other side wiser? That's, you know, that's what I try to do. Absolutely. I think uh, this sounds uh, a little selfish, but I think that's our job every day. Yes, humans. Is to be as curious as possible and to keep our minds working and mm-hmm. try to try to see the world, try to really see it, try to really be here. Um, 100%. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna sound like a tree person, but that's okay. It's oh, refreshing. Yeah. We it's, love it. We love it's it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Even though we have worse air quality than you right now. Right now you do. No, right now, but bad. it's coming back. It'll Sorry. come back. So, what else should we know about you, Robbie? There's RobbieBenson.com. You have your website, and we're going to put links to whatever you need us to put links to in your show notes. That and, song we're going to put. And put the up song broken. is it's so lovely. Yeah, Thanks. that song is. You know that. If the video is to me what makes the song work, yeah. Because if you get if you get to the end of the video and you see the kid, and you realize that I'm talking about myself, and this is what is this it? I mean, you know, I mean, it, this is what I would like. I would love for people to see it. So that's it's accessible with the link. Bit. That's accessible. It's a video as well as audio on the link as well, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'll make it we'll happen. Figure it out. We'll figure I've it out. I've got the link. Don't worry. We'll share it. Okay, thanks. I'm so sorry. That's fantastic. Oh, that one plays. That one plays. Yeah, I don't know if it plays. That one plays because it plays. Oh, oh, that's on YouTube. That's cool. All that's right. That's great. Yeah, thanks, guys. and I've seen it on your website, too, so we'll make sure that we share all of that. Aw. Thanks. So uh, here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast, and you can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate that so much. You can sign up for our spicy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com and we want to thank our wonderful guest Robbie Benson our team includes Dina Friedman who is our producer John Maddox Bill Filippiak Thomas Hubble Mason Brown Lori DeWall Garrett Arch Nick Broussard Chris Baldwin and you our theme music is by me and John Maddox I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman be well and wise and we will see you along the media path <laughs>